Well, good morning. Uh, my name is Phil, and I am with LifePoint Church in Farmington, Utah. Uh, I appreciate this privilege. I told Cody this morning I appreciate this. I know it is extremely hard for a pastor to give up his pulpit, uh, and so I thank you. Um, I learned many things when I was an assistant pastor for five years in California, which kind of seems like a lifetime ago now. But one thing I learned as an assistant pastor was there was one thing that you could do above all others to make people like you. And that was to be a little bit shorter than the main guy. So since I noticed that Cordy, Cordy, Cody averages about 42 minutes, my goal's 39, we'll see how it goes. Then you'll love me no matter what I say. So anyway, here we go. Well, this morning we're gonna talk about the idea, as you probably have figured out, of being a neighbor. Now, all of you have next door neighbors, probably. Some of them might be right next door, like mine. There's about three feet of space in between my house and my neighbor's house. Some of you may have a half mile or more between your neighbors. And if you look on the internet, there are a ton of funny neighbor stories. Some of you may have some. Right after we were married, Rachel and I lived in New Jersey, right outside New York City. It was not a cheap place to live. And we really needed a place that actually would give us a month-to-month -month lease, and that really limited our options. And we lived in a place that, I mean, really can only be described as a dump. It was three levels, and there were like six apartments in this thing. And we had a neighbor who was literally crazy. I'll call him Arthur, since that was his name. Um, <laughs> But Arthur was legitimately, he was schizophrenic. And he was a very interesting neighbor. There were times where you would hear him in his apartment yelling at and arguing with the news. There'd be a news story about whatever, and he'd be like, that's not true. And he'd be yelling at the, at the TV. And of course, it was like 11 o'clock at night and later. He also at times would walk up and down the stairs, and what level did he live on? The third. And each stair he would count. But instead of using numbers, he would use a different swear word for each stairs. <laughs> and then also, more than once, I was greeted at five, six, seven in the morning to our, our buzzer being buzzed, and not just me, everybody in this apartment complex getting buzzed because for some reason he would lock himself outside in his underwear at six in the morning. And he wouldn't stop buzzing until somebody let him in. Now, as we look back on that today, that's kind of a, a fond memory for Rachel and I. At the time, it wasn't quite as fond, as you can imagine. But when we think about this idea of neighbors, really this morning, I don't want us to think of so much about our next door neighbor or think about some of these funny stories that we may all have but really see what God says about this idea of being a neighbor. And I'm pretty sure you can figure out what passage we're going to go to. You can take your Bibles and go to Luke chapter 10, Luke chapter 10, and we're going to go to the passage of the Good Samaritan. Now, I think the danger sometimes with these um, passages that are extremely familiar to us is we're like, oh yeah, I know that story. <laughs> And you're right, you probably do. But I, I really pray that this morning we kind of open our minds and open our hearts to what God is going to teach us through this passage. 
Because as the Bible goes, no matter how many times you read it, there's always usually something that God is going to reveal to you about yourself and reveal to me about myself. So before we take a moment any further, I'm going to read the passage and I'm going to pray and then we're going to dive into it and see what God has for us. Luke chapter 10, verse 25, it says, And behold, a lawyer stood up to put him, to put Jesus to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? He said to him, what is written in the law? How do you read it? And he answered, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, with all your strength, with all your mind and your neighbor as yourself. And he said to him, you have answered correctly. Do this and you will live. But he, this is talking about the lawyer, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, and who is my neighbor? Jesus replied, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell among robbers who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. Now by chance, a priest was going down that road, and when he saw, uh, when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. So likewise, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. He went with him. He bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And the next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper saying, take care of him and whatever more you spend, I will repay you when I come back. Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? He said, the one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said to him, you go and do likewise. Let's pray. God, we love you. We thank you for the great love that you showed us. God, I pray that as we look at your word this morning, you would calm our busy hearts, calm our busy minds, uh, help us to um, put out the distractions of the week, of the day, and God, to focus on you. God, we thank you for allowing us to be neighbors, and I pray that you would help us to truly emulate that in our lives. God, we love you in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, this morning, if there was kind of one idea that I want you to take away, I'm going I'm to give you two ideas here. And if you have your sermon guide, uh, I have some fill in the blanks. And I, I give you a lot of blanks because I know with all of the, uh, all the food you ate, you're going to have to just stay awake somehow. So I figured if I make you right, maybe that'll help. And so the very first thing on there, it talks about something. And it says, as Christians, as Christians, we are to accurately reflect the character and nature of God correct? That is our goal. And the greatest evidence of our faith is our love for God and others. The greatest evidence that we are actually truly Christians, if we say we are, is our love for God and our love for others. You know, sometimes they say, if you were on trial for being a Christian, would you be convicted innocent or convicted guilty? I guess you're not convicted if you're innocent, but would you be declared innocent or convicted guilty? Well, hopefully you would be declared and convicted of guilt based on your love. And so as we go through this passage this morning, let's look at a couple things. You look at verse 25 and we see this lawyer stands up and his goal is to test Jesus. Throughout the Gospels, we see the Pharisees and the scribes, even the Sadducees at times, desiring to test and to trick Jesus. Now, these groups are the religious groups of the day. This says lawyer here, and this lawyer was a scribe. 
He was somebody who knew the Old Testament law inside and out. He had it memorized. Anybody have all the law memorized? I know I sure don't. He had it memorized. And not only did he have it memorized, he was an expert in it. And so he stands up to Jesus and says, hey, I have a question for you. And his question is a very interesting question. What shall I do to inherit eternal life? Now, the answer that we expect Jesus to give is probably a little bit different than the answer Jesus gave, correct? If somebody asked you that question today, what would you say? Well, you probably would say what, what was said in Acts 16, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you'll be saved. And the Bible says that. But Jesus takes a little bit different approach here because he knows the man's heart. He knows what this guy is struggling with. And so what he says to him is what? He asks him a question. So often, we are very quick to speak, are we not? If I get asked a question, man, I like to jump in and boom, right? I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to spout everything I know to you, which might take a little bit on certain subjects and it might be very quick on others. But I am, I am rather than the slow to speak, swift to hear guy, a lot of times I'm the slow to hear and swift to speak. And so this, Jesus asked him a very interesting question. The guy asked Jesus a question and he kind of plays the politician on him. He doesn't answer the question and he turns it around and says what? What does the law say? How do, how do you read it? And look at the man's response. What does he say? He says, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind, with all your strength, and your neighbor as yourself. In fact, he goes to two different places. He goes to Deuteronomy chapter 6, where he gets to love your, the Lord your God. And he goes to Le Leviticus 19 to love your neighbor as yourself. Now, if you think about what he says, is there truth there? Absolutely. For, for a minute, I want you to consider this. Is it possible to love the Lord your God with all of your heart, all of your soul, all of your strength, and all of your mind? What is another word for that? Completely. Can you love God completely? I mean, are you capable of doing that? The answer is what? No. In and of ourselves, we can't actually do that. And this kind of, I think, goes back to the purpose of the law. What was the law designed to do? It was to reveal our sin. To reveal that I can't keep this perfectly. And yet God demands perfection. And that's why Jesus is so great. Because Jesus did what we can't do, right? Jesus came he lived that perfect life that God demanded, that life of righteousness. And then because of our sin, we deserve something. And what is that? It's death. And Jesus took all of our sin and put it on his shoulders on that cross. Amen. And as he did that, he took that penalty for sin, that death. He died the death that we deserved so that we can have life. And so as, as this man says really what a, the true answer is, knowing full well that he can't actually keep it either, Jesus gets to the heart there. And something I think that's interesting, Jesus says to him, you've answered correctly, do this and you will live. Is Jesus saying you can earn your salvation? No, that would go against everything in the Bible. What is Jesus saying? Yeah, be perfect and you can do this. This man wants a list he wants to be able to 
know, hey, how much good is good enough? And what's the answer to that question, friends? There is no good that is good enough. There is no good in me and there's no good in you. No matter how good you are, that can get us to God. And so Jesus gets at the heart of it. But not only does he get at the heart of kind of his wanting to attain his salvation, he gets to the heart for how this man really is. Because friends, on the outside, there's a lot of times we put on a really good front, do we not? And on the inside, it's a little bit different. In fact, there are times where if you knew everything going on in here, you'd be like, that guy's terrible. And you know how I know that? Because you all are the same, right? We all are that way. So Jesus gets there. So something that's interesting is if you look down at verse 29, the man asks a question because he wants to justify himself. He wants to think of himself as good, as maybe better than he is. And what is the question he asks? Well, who is my neighbor? Notice which of those two does he go after? Does he go after love God completely or love your neighbor as yourself? He doesn't go after the God part. He goes after the neighbor. I think there's a couple reasons for that. One, I think that's a little bit easier to attain. <laughs> Two, there was actually some debate in the Jewish circles at this time as to who your neighbor actually was. You see, God had told them their neighbor was who? Just to be everybody. In fact, back in Leviticus, God talks about, hey, there's aliens in your land and not the kind from outer space. We mean the non-Jewish people. There's aliens, take them in. And really what he's saying is show God's love to them. Did the Jewish people do this? No, they didn't. And he, uh, and so at this time, the Jewish people had the idea of, hey, you know what? My neighbor is actually Jewish people. And that's it. In fact, in some branches of Judaism, only certain Jews were included in this. So he's trying to get an out for what Jesus is saying. And so Jesus, as Jesus was so apt to do, he gives him a story to illustrate his point. And as we read this story of the Good Samaritan, we see he tells it in concrete terms that the guy would understand. A man was going down from Jerusalem to, Jer to Jericho. It's like a 17-mile trip that descends 2,500 feet in elevation. And as he is going down, this road was notorious for robbers. There's caves all over it, and they would hide out there, and if somebody is coming, they would rob them. In fact, it, is, it was so notorious, you have Josephus, a Jewish historian from that time, mentions it, and there's a, a father in church history a couple hundred years later that mentions how many thieves are on this road. It was known, so he talks about this. Hey, this, this is going on. And as it would happen, the man gets beat up. Not just beat up, but what? He gets robbed and he's left for dead. He's in bad shape. And Jesus goes and, and, and talks about three people that come by. The first is a priest. He is just leaving Jerusalem. He probably was just serving in the temple. If there's ever a time you should be more in tune with God, when is it? Well, it's right now. You just got done serving God in the temple. So as, the, as, the, as this beat up guy is there, I mean, can you imagine being him? You're left for dead. You're bleeding. There's somebody coming by. You see it's a priest and you're like, yes, somebody to help me. And he walks around you. 
The second guy, a Levite. Now that priest is kind of that top of the Jewish, in the Jewish religion. Followed the tribe of Aaron and, and they did all this work for God in the temple. The Levite was part of the tribe of Levi. They weren't priests, but they would help out. So it's another guy who you would expect religiously is going to care. What does he do? Walks around the other side. The Bible doesn't tell us why. Jesus didn't actually even care about their motives, which I think is very interesting. Our, their motives didn't actually matter. What mattered? Their actions. Their actions. So as the story goes, Jesus goes through this Levite, this priest, and he gets to verse 33, and Jesus now takes this story and flips it completely with what this scribe thinks is coming. He probably thinks it's just some ordinary Jewish guy that's going to be coming down the road. But Jesus goes with a different guy, and it's a Samaritan. Now, if you know anything about the New Testament, the Samaritans, how were they looked upon? Favorably or unfavorably? Yeah, unfavorably. In fact, it's not just the, the, the scribes and the Pharisees that didn't like them. Jesus' own disciples didn't, didn't like them. If you go just a chapter before, in chapter 9, uh, down in verse 51, I'll give you just a picture of how the disciples thought about him. It says, When the days drew near for uh, him, Jesus, to be taken up, he set his face to go to Jerusalem. And he sent messengers ahead of him who went and entered a village of the Samaritans to make preparations for him. But the people did not receive him because his face was set towards Jerusalem. And when his disciples, James and John, saw it, they said, Lord, do you want us to tell fire to come down from heaven and consume them? But Jesus turned and rebuked them, and they went on to another village. James and John, Jesus' two out of his three core disciples, hated these people. So much that they're like, oh, this, this village didn't accept us? Let's send down fire and consume them. I mean, that's quite the picture. And what's interesting is there were a lot of villages that didn't accept Jesus in the Jewish lands either. Guess what they never requested? They never requested fire to come down and consume them. And you're like, well, why were these people hated? Was it something they did? And really the answer is yes and no. So really you have to trace this back 700 years Nobody hears that old, so that's good. But 700 years previously, the kingdom of Israel was split. You had the southern two tribes in, in, in Judah, and you had the northern 10 tribes in Israel. Well, the northern 10 tribes were bad. They never followed God, and so God punished them. And you can read about this in like Kings and Chronicles. You had the nation of Assyria come in and just decimate them. And Assyria's plan when they conquered somebody was they wanted to prevent uprisings. That's smart. So how they did that was they would take people from all over their king conquered uh, lands, they would send them to the new one, and then they would take people from there and send them out. The plan being in that next generation, what's going to happen? Everybody's going to intermarry, and nobody's going to revolt because they're all family. Their plan was actually fairly effective until Babylon decided no more. And so in the law, in the, in the Old Testament, God tells the people, hey, don't marry people from other foreign lands. Don't marry people with other religion. And the northern tribes, when Assyria came in and intermingled them, what do you think they did? They married other people. And as the Jews viewed them, they would really kind of view them as half-breeds. People who didn't follow God, people who weren't really Jewish. And they were hated 700 years later because of it. I want you to think about something for a minute. 
How many of you decided where you would be born? How many of you decided what family you'd be born to? Yeah, you're like, oh, no, no. How many of you decided things like the skin color you have, the hair color you have, whether you have hair? None of that, right? That's all decided for us. And the Jews hated these Samaritans because of something these Samaritans themselves never could actually control. Now, there was some religious differences as well. They didn't worship in the temple. They worshiped on a, a Mount Gerizim up, up where they were. But ultimately, it came back to who they actually were. And so Jesus takes a story. He turns it on his head and he talks about this Samaritan who very likely was a businessman. That's why he was traveling there. And as he sees this man, he has what? Compassion. Compassion. Look at the things that the Bible talks about this Samaritan doing. He goes over to him, which the first other two guys didn't. They walk around. He goes over to him. He has compassion. He bound up his wounds. He poured oil and wine on them. He then put him on his own animal. So instead of him riding the animal, now this hurt guy is, he walks. He takes him to an inn, which were not the most reputable of places. Uh, reading some stuff on that, they were very shady places where the innkeepers were very corrupt usually. And he takes him there. He took care of him. The next day, not only does he take care of him, but he, what, he pays for a couple weeks worth of stay and then he tells the innkeeper, whatever more it costs, I'll pay you when I come back. Who wants a friend like that guy? Me, right? Uh, who wants a friend like the priest? Oh, he's a really good guy in society. He's a jerk. This guy, who cares what he's like in society? He cares, right? He cares. This Samaritan. And so what does Jesus do as he tells him this story? Jesus asks the scribe or this lawyer something that gets to, to get to the heart of the issue. And he says, hey, in this story, who is the one who what? Who was the neighbor? What is the scribe's response? The one who showed him mercy. What do you notice that the scribe doesn't do there? He doesn't mention him by name. He hates this man so much, he doesn't even mention him by name. And then Jesus says, you go and do likewise. So this morning, a couple different things as we kind of go through a little bit of application, which is really what's on your sermon guide. The question is, who is my neighbor? And the answer to that question is what? People. It's not just your next door neighbor, it's people. People. This man was worried so much about who his neighbor was that he wasn't actually fulfilling what he was supposed to do. So for us, as you can see your blanks there, would be worry less about who your neighbor is and worry about actually being a good neighbor. It starts with what? One person. Like, well, who should I help? Who should I help? We can get paralyzed by not knowing, hey, who to help, maybe the fear of it. Start somewhere. Start with one. Start with one. I mean, truly, if everybody would help somebody, how much better off would we be? We'd be a lot better off. And as we look at this idea of a neighbor, a neighbor acts out of something. And they act out of love. Act out of love. 
Have you ever been shown love in your life? I mean, if not, that's a hard thing. If yes, there's nothing better than that. When somebody chooses to do something for you because they love you, not because you've guilted them into it, but because they want to. The greatest demonstration of love that has ever been displayed was what? We talked about it a couple minutes ago. It was Jesus. Jesus coming to earth, living on the earth, and then dying for us, who at that time were what? Was it because of all the potential we had? Man, these guys have a lot of really good qualities where they can help out my kingdom. No. We were what? His enemies. His enemies. That's sobering. And yet God loved us that much. The greatest demonstration. We become neighbors to others by caring for their needs. And as we do that, we show the love of Jesus. We do. I mean, why does God leave us on earth after we get saved? Does he need us? If God so wanted, he could write John 3.16 across the sky, could he not? I mean, he made the sky, he could probably write it across the sky. He could do whatever he wanted to. And yet he allows us to take part in his mission. In his mission of redeeming this world to himself. It's amazing. As we love others, we show that. But as we do that so often, I kind of have ulterior motives at times. Who do I like to help out? A lot of times I like to help out those that I think can someday help me out. You look at this, this Samaritan, what was he expecting back from this wounded man? And the answer is nothing. Friends, give expecting nothing in return. Give expecting nothing in return. Our love for people must be greater than really in a lot of ways we can imagine. In fact, our love for people must transcend boundaries. And we set up an awful lot of boundaries. I put some on there. You can put a lot of different things down. I put race, which by that, I mean, there's one race, we're all human, right? But I use that word of the way that usually gets used. Ethnicity, right? Nationality. Who cares what country somebody's from? We have nationality, uh, race, religion, geographic regions. Sometimes you have people who've set up boundaries. You've heard on the other side of the train tracks, that literally happens, right? Transcend that boundary. Economic, socioeconomic things. Educational. A lot of times we like to hang out with people who are kind of on that same educational, uh, educational level we are. Social, political, all of these boundaries we set up. Well, people that, hey, you know what? I'm not going to hang out with so-and-so because they watch CNN or I'm not going to hang out with so-and-so because they watch Fox News. You know what? Who cares? God's love transcends all of this. He transcended it for us. And, and truly, as he's talking to us, he wants us to transcend that for other people. He is telling this scribe 
your actions matter. You can say you love God, prove it. Prove it. A true response of faith is more than mental assent. There are many times we're like, yeah, I believe so-and-so. I believe this. I believe that. I said some words, right? But God's word says, hey, it is more than mental assent for faith to be true. What is necessary? Results in action. True faith results in action. If you look at James chapter 2, James chapter 2, verses now, 14, I'll go through 17. James says, what good is it, my brothers, if someone he ha says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? If a brother or a sister is poorly clothed, lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warm, be filled, without giving them the things they need for the body, what good is that? So also, faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. James isn't preaching a works-based gospel there, what he is saying is if we are truly saved, there is evidence in our actions. A faith that says, I believe God, but doesn't actually love people, James says is what? Not actually true faith at all. For Christians... Love is truly a verb. Now, I'm going to date myself with this just a little bit. For some of you, you might remember back in, say, the mid-90s, there was this Christian band called DC Talk. Yeah. And this is the first time in my life I ever remember hearing that love was a verb. They had this song, and it talks about how love was a verb and how they went to the dictionary, and look, hey, it's a verb. What was the whole point of that? Now, they couldn't spell the word love, which I figured out... L-U-V is not actually how you spell that. But love, what did they mean by that? Love is a verb. Usually when we think of love, we think of that warm, fuzzy feeling that I have for my wife. Or you're going to laugh. I love the Buffalo Bills. I understand. You're like, why? Because I am a sucker for punishment, I guess. Right? I understand concepts like patience, perseverance, having no hope because of my bills. But <laughs> it's true, right? We have bumper stickers on our car. You know, hey, it brings up conversations. If you meet another Bills fan in Utah, you're going to talk to them. People that would never talk to us otherwise. I love the Bills. That's what we think of, right? This warm, fuzzy feeling. But actually, love is much more than that. Love requires us to do. Love requires us to do something. That is what Jesus is telling the scribe. Hey, you think you know all the answers? In fact, you know the answer, but you're not putting any of it into practice. My friends, put your love into practice. Love is truly a verb. When you think about the love that God had for us, it transcended everything. I gave you a list of like, you know, eight things that came to my mind. His love transcended the fact that he is God who became man. God who created the universe became a baby. Can you imagine how humbling it was for him to have somebody change his diaper? I can't even fathom that. To have to like learn how to be a carpenter when he knows everything, you know, all of that stuff that he grew in wisdom, he grew in knowledge, and he did it for you. Man, 
What a picture. And yet how often do I have people that I look at and I'm like, eh, not so much you. And as the church, I really believe we have segments of society that so often we look at and we're like, kind of okay if you guys go to hell. Now, do we ever visualize that like vocally? Not necessarily. But by our actions, it's kind of what we actually say. So my friends, this morning, if you get nothing else, I want you to think about this idea. Love God and love others above all else. That is truly being a neighbor. If we truly love God like we say we do, who else are we going to love? People. People. Regardless of where they're at in life. I have something novel for you this morning. Sinners, what do they do? They sin. Sinners sin. And so often we're like, I can't. This person's a terrible. Of course they're a terrible person. Who do they not know? Jesus. Right? They're not going to clean up their lives before they come to Jesus. They're not going to clean up their life before that. That all happens afterwards. Think about Jesus and his example to us in the Gospels. Who was he hanging out with a lot of the times? I mean, was it your cream of the crop people? It wasn't your religious elite. In fact, he, he went after them pretty hard. You had guys like James and John who want to call down fire on people. Right? They're, they're gruff fishermen. You had Matthew who was a hated tax collector. And in his same band, you had Simon who was a zealot. The zealots hated Roman rule and eventually fought it multiple times. Matthew was all on board with Roman rule and was getting rich off of it. Can you imagine some of the debates that happened between Simon the zealot and Matthew in those journeys? And Jesus did what? Come. Come. He goes to Zacchaeus' house. In fact, he invites himself to Zacchaeus' house. You notice that? It's not Zacchaeus who says, hey, come on over, Jesus. Jesus says what? Yeah, you, I'm going to your house today. And all of the Jewish people go, whoa. Jesus interacts with Matthew the first time he meets him and says, hey, you know what? Bring your friends. And who were his friends? Other tax collectors, sinners, prostitutes. I mean, this is who he's hanging out with. And Jesus says what? They matter. And it wasn't just them. Jesus interacted with the religious elite. We see some of them follow him, right? You can see across the span, Jesus loved those who were the best of the best, the Nicodemuses, who eventually comes to believe in Jesus, so much so that he puts his reputation online for, for Jesus. The Joseph of Arimathea's, who are the, the elite, down to the low. Say, well, who is my neighbor? So Phil, who should, I, who should I interact with today? Honestly, I don't know. I don't know, I don't know your situation. You do. There's probably something that comes to your mind. And the Holy Spirit knows. And if you're like, hey, I don't know, pray. God will show you. Right? God will reveal to you. But love God and love others above all else. Be a neighbor. Let's pray. Hi, I'm Cody Hill. I'm the lead pastor here at Iron City. 
Thank you so much for connecting with us online. I hope in the days ahead that we'll have an opportunity to connect with you in person. On our website, ironcity.org, you'll see a number of different opportunities that you have to connect with our church and opportunities that we're seeking to engage our community and minister to our church family. I'd like to especially invite you to come and be a part of one of our connection groups that meet at 9 o'clock immediately preceding our Sunday morning worship service. You'll find that we're not a perfect church, but we are a passionate church. We take following Jesus very seriously, but we try not to take ourselves too seriously. So I hope you'll come this Sunday at 1015 and worship with us and let us get to know you a little bit better.